every great story, every great story has a muddy middle where it feels like everything is coming undone. Have you ever noticed this? Every great story, there's some moment where the opposition against the central character begins to to rise, where there's challenge and opposition, and we're tempted to believe that here in this muddy middle, everything is going to come undone. As Mike Tyson, the great philosopher, once said, everyone has a great plan right up until the point where they get punched in the mouth. When opposition gathers, all of a sudden it feels like things are coming undone. William Wilberforce, years ago in fighting the battle to put an end to the transatlantic slave trade, in 1787 he stepped into that fight in England in Parliament, and it took him 20 years, and there were moments along that journey, namely the first vote that he lost by an overwhelming majority, and then subsequent issues where it felt like this is a valley, and the opposition is great, and we're never going to make headway on these challenging justice issues. Marriages most often come apart uh, around the seven-year mark. It's called the seven-year hump because couples who felt called to one another and called to this journey find themselves into a moment where the opposition builds and the muddy middle makes them want to quit. They go, I don't know that this is what I signed up for. I've had Friends who have stepped into the adoption journey called by God, knowing that God has a heart for children that are exposed and fatherless, that God's heart beats fast for those sorts of children. And and so as folks respond to that call, they often find that it is not an easy A to B journey, but it has all sorts of valleys and difficulties, that there are muddy middle moments that make people want to quit because they go, this is hard. Whatever the calling and whatever the narrative, whatever the story, every great story has a, has a muddy middle where the opposition builds. The heartache is real. The challenge is overwhelming. And we think maybe, maybe I've taken a wrong turn. Maybe this wasn't my calling. We start to renegotiate. We start to think in different directions and go, maybe it's just time for me to quit. And the question that I want to press into, that I want to wrestle with together as a community, is how do we continue? How do we continue through challenge as it multiplies? How do we continue when we're way down in the valley and we feel like the mud is thick and our feet are stuck and it is dark and it is overwhelming and we think this story This story just took an unexpected turn, and I think it's time for me to quit right in that moment. How do we continue? What does it look like to continue in the midst of that sort of challenge? Nehemiah 4, as we continue with this journey, is going to expose for us a few few marks of how we can be the sorts of people that continue in challenge. By by way of reminder, we're studying a memoir. It's a study of a leader named Nehemiah and the people he has called to a great work to defend the honor of God as they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem after they had been destroyed. And so here we pick up our story in Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to read for us the first nine verses to introduce us to this chapter. And just before I read, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. It says that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. 
we would be really wise to pay attention to what God has to say to us today in hopes that we would be the sort of people that continue pursuing our calling in the midst of all sorts of challenge. Nehemiah 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. The word literally means hot with fury. It's like a fire had started inside of him. And he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. And you can read this series of questions with hot fury. It's as if he's shaking with anger as he's saying these things. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it themselves? Are they going to sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox were to go up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Well, Throughout this chapter, what we are going to see is the the muddy middle for Nehemiah and those who are with him. The opposition is building. The opposition throughout this chapter is like, it's like an aggressive cancer that is metastasizing, taking ground. It is swelling and growing and moving into new territories, that the opposition is real and fierce. We heard it at the start that Sambalat and Tobiah have taken to anger and to mockery. The series of quaking questions that are, that are issued in those early verses, he asks them over and over, and he's picking at the people's perseverance, their faithfulness, their boldness. Did you see it? He's asking those questions. What are these feeble Jews doing in verse 2? Will they restore it for themselves? He's saying they're not powerful enough to do this. Will they, will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? He's questioning their perseverance. Will they really stick with this thing? Do they really understand what it's going to take? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And then Tobiah jumps in, his, his kind of crony, his, his right-hand man jumps in and goes, yeah, if a fox were to jump over on that wall, it would fall over. The stones would come undone. So here's men out of anger that are mocking the Jews publicly. They're picking and prodding and st- trying to start a fight, as it were. And this is the first wave of opposition. It is anger and it's mockery, and it's an attempt to kind of thump these guys in the chest and say, what are you going to do about it? Now, when we face this sort of initial wave of opposition, depending on your personality, you may have one of two typical responses. One of two typical responses. If you're more of an introvert, someone that is kind of conflict averse, you will be tempted to fold in in this moment. When you deal with opposition, as you start to pursue your calling, there's this temptation. If I'm not making people happy, if it's starting to create conflict, I fold in. 
This is that anxiety-ridden inner monologue where you start to replay the conversations and you start to pick at it and go, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they seemed really upset. I don't know what I'm going to do about this. And anxiety-ridden inner monologue starts to, starts to churn internally. And this, this ultimately causes courage to evaporate like a shallow puddle in the Houston heat. Like the courage just leaves in front of us. We can feel it evaporating as we're starting to churn on the anxiety of the ways that we're making people unhappy. There's others of you that are extroverts, that are not conflict averse. You're for conflict. You like the clash. These sorts of people don't fold in, but they lash out. They say, who said what about me? They're going to have to answer for that. Is that you? Are you that sort of person that says, I am going to call them to account. We're going to have this out. You see, if we're not careful, we can go down the path of folly by lashing out. Proverbs 30 and verse 33 says that if you press milk, it'll curdle. If you press a nose, it will produce blood. And if you press anger, it will produce strife. What it's saying is don't be surprised. If you pour fuel on hot anger, the fire's going to get bigger. You're going to have strife that grows. It's as sure as if you get punched in the nose, it's going to cause it to bleed. That's what's going to happen. That's what the proverb is saying. And the struggle is that we either fold in and our courage evaporates or we lash out and it causes the problem to get bigger and it derails us. But did you see what Nehemiah did? He refused both of these natural responses. And instead of folding in or lashing out, he looks up. Did you see it? In verse four and five, listen, he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Now, don't get me wrong. Nehemiah is hot, but he's not hot towards these people. He's hot towards God. He lays it before God. He says, turn back their taunt on their heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Don't cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out, for they have provoked you to anger. In the presence of the builders. Nehemiah is so focused on God and his glory that, that he prays and he prays like he believes it. And he lays it at the feet of God. And then I love that in verse six, he says, so we built the wall. <laughs> he prayed and then he got to work. He didn't spend time folding in and being anxiety ridden about what people think. He didn't lash out to start a fight. He just laid it before God and he kept moving. And isn't it the case that if, if we pray first, if our first step is prayer, and we honor God and we, we just stay focused, because this really is, this is the first mark. If we're going to be the sort of people that continue in the midst of challenge, we pray first. And isn't it the case that if we pray first, it just makes everything easy? It makes everything perfect and smooth? Wait, is that, is that what happened in the text? <laughs> no, no, no. No, in fact, keep reading this is, the way the, this is the way the muddy middle works. Nehemiah responds faithfully and it makes the opposition multiply. It makes it worse. He prays first and this is the right sort of first step, but it just makes it harder. Look at verse seven and eight. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. This is a multiplying of the challenge. It's getting worse in verses 7 and 8. That in fact, what they're saying is that 
we get these marks, these geographical marks about the people that are now with it previously was just these two guys. And now there's these other groups that have joined in. And if you were to map out geographically these different groups, what it is saying is Jerusalem now has opposition on north, south, east, and west. They are surrounded by opposition. And the opposition is threatening physical harm. So Nehemiah responds faithfully, praying and staying focused, and it's just getting worse. When we pray first, when we pray first, we can stay faithful even as the opposition grows. And interestingly, in verse 9, what does he do? Verse 9 says, and we prayed to our God. Initial opposition, Nehemiah prays. Opposition grows. Nehemiah prays again. His first step each time is to pray. We pray first if we are going to continue through the challenge. This doesn't mean we only pray, but it does mean that we pray first. We pray first, then we send for a doctor. We pray first, then we find an excellent counselor. We pray first, then we talk to our friends and invite the community in. Are we a people that pray first? This is the first key component to continuing through the muddy middle. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we throw everything we've got at a problem. And then we come to a spot where we go, ah, I guess I better pray about this. We've talked to the doctors. We've garnered the counselors. We've talked with our friends. We've had endless conversations. And finally we go, okay, God, we need your help with this. That is not the way this community that progresses faithfully through the muddy middle is responding. Did you hear it? They pray first. And the first mark for us of continuing in the muddy middle is that we pray first. One final note on this before we move on. If you grew up in a a kind of formal religious context, maybe you grew up in the Catholic church or the Episcopalian church, maybe a church that leaned heavy on the Book of Common Prayer. We, we have brothers and sisters in those different traditions, and we are grateful for them. I would just say that if you found your way in here, let me encourage you that if you think prayer is always formal, sounds like it's been scripted, is offered in particular moments in particular ways, I want you to be invited by the heart of the Father into something different. Not stayed in formal religious exercise. But like Nehemiah, in the moment, guttural and relational, saying, God, I need you now. I'm coming to you first. I'm coming to you believing that you are the one with the authority and the capacity to help me keep moving. Because right now, it feels like I'm beginning to slide down into a valley. I need you, God. We have to lay aside our formal and religious approach to God and engage relationally with Him if we're going to be the sort of people that pray as we go to pray first in the face of opposition. But I want you to notice that's not all that Nehemiah does. Look back with me at verse 9. He prays first, but he doesn't only pray. In verse 9 it says, We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. This is a both and. He says we prayed and we set the guard. That this was a a full-on, we are going to be prepared for what's coming. I want you to envision with me the recent law student that has just graduated and is about to take the bar. Uh, Imagine that she, in preparation for the bar, decides, I so believe in God and His power, the God of all knowledge and all recall and all insight. I'm going to spend my days praying. I'm going to fast and pray. 
I'm going to be prepared for this bar because I have prayed and believe that God will help me through it. But she does not study her books. That sounds so faithful, doesn't it? Praying and fasting and relying on God. But let me just say this very plainly. God is not going to answer your essays for you. He's not going to pay your bills for you. He's not going to speak tenderly to your wife for you. You have to do that. You do that. You see, we pray first, and then the second reality is this. We need clarity of action. We don't only pray. We pray first, and then we match it with clarity of action. That we, we don't choose between the two, because the truth is, it may sound really faithful to say, well, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray that God pays my bills. I'm going to pray that God restores my marriage. But we don't step in and do our part with his help and his power. That that's not faithful. That's just foolish. That is us ejecting on our responsibility and what God is calling us to. And I want you to see that as this story continues, that, that Nehemiah doesn't pick. You see, he sets a guard. He's prepared. And now that he's praying and responding with clarity of action, now everything is going to be smooth sailing, right? <laughs> no, that is not the way the muddy middle works. Look back with me at verses 10 through 12. Here's a man that's praying. Here's a man who's setting a guard and he's prepared. Now everybody should be ready to sail right along. But no, this is not the way it works. Look at verse 10 through 12. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now listen, the people who are doing the work with Nehemiah, their courage is beginning to fail. They're hearing people might come and attack us from any direction at any moment. Verse 11, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and we kill them and we stop their work. And at the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You have to return to us. Do you hear it? The opposition that had surrounded Jerusalem is now soaking into the very fabric of Jerusalem. That the people who are doing the work are starting to go, I think this is a bad idea. We're about, to be, we're about to be attacked from any direction. I think I'm out. And then it says all the people from the surrounding areas are coming and saying, come home. In essence, all of the husbands and the dads have left the surrounding villages to come work in Jerusalem. And their wives and their children have heard the rumors that there might be an attack. And they're going, they're coming every day to the walls and saying, Nehemiah, you have to send them home. This is not safe. Our family is exposed. You have to let them return to us. Now, what must this have felt like? A man who has been praying and trying to respond with clarity of action. This is a low point. This is down at the pit of the valley. This is where you feel like the mud has risen up to the middle of my legs. I can't take a step. I am stuck down here. This is a dark moment. But I want you to see, I want you to see that this man who has prayed first at every point and now is responding with clarity of action, pay attention to verses 13 through 20. Let me read them for you. And I want you to see how he responds with such clarity of action. And pay attention to what he doesn't do. He's not going to promise certainty. He's not going to promise them. He knows how this is going to pan out, but he is going to provide clarity. Pay attention to how Nehemiah provides clarity in verses 13 through 20. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. 
And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. He is great and awesome and he fight and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and it's widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. He continues to speak with confidence that God is in the midst and he will be involved in the work, but he has a very clear plan. It's the sword and the trowel plan. Have your sword and get to work. We're going to station people down here ready to fight. And then there's the workers. And then there's the leaders behind them keeping an eye out. And here's Nehemiah with a communication plan. The trumpeter will be next to me. And if there's a problem, we'll blow the trumpet. Rally there. We'll fight back. What he provides to his people is a very clear action plan. What he does not do is promise certainty. We are tempted in moments like this where the opposition continues to grow. We are tempted to restore hope with empty optimism, with enthusiasm, to say things like, look at me, look at me. I promise I'm not going to let anything happen to you. Nehemiah didn't say that because he couldn't in good conscience. He didn't know. Soldiers might come marching in at any point. People's blood might be spilled. People might die. He didn't say, I am going to make sure that you're safe at every point. What he said is this, we have a clear plan and God is with us. And that was sufficient for the people to continue to buy in a very clear plan. Listen to me. If you find yourself in the midst of the pursuit of call and it feels like you are in the muddy middle Resist the urge to say to those with you to promise to them certainty about things you don't have certainty about. This will disillusion your co-conspirators. This will cause them to start to go, I don't know about this journey. I don't know that this person has a plan for where we're headed. If your marriage right now is in the muddy middle, COVID has taken its toll on you. Maybe you guys have, you and your spouse have been at odds with one another. If in an attempt to restore some stability, what you say to your spouse is this, hey, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. I promise this is just a bump in the road and everything is fine. And you leave it at that. Listen, that is not actually helpful. What I would encourage you to do is pray first. Get on your knees and pray that God would make you the sort of spouse that could really love and serve another. And then find an excellent counselor. Plan regular date nights. Talk to your house church and invite a few couples into the journey with you. And say to your spouse, here is a clear plan by which we can begin to restore health. Will you go on the journey with me? You see, 
We ought not promise certainty with empty enthusiasm, but we should provide clarity because we're thinking deeply about the challenges of those who are with us on the journey. You see, the two marks in this community that allows them to keep moving forward in the midst of opposition is that they pray first and there's clarity of action. And when those two things happen simultaneously, where we don't choose between one or the other, but we lean into both, let me show you what happens in verses 21 through 23. Where these two things are simultaneously present, there is widespread buy-in. Widespread buy-in. Look at verses 21 through 23. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Do you hear that? That's a band of brothers in a battle together. He says, we all slept Inside the walls, we didn't even take our clothes off. We slept with our weapon close to us because as we had a clear plan and confidence that God was with us, we were ready to go to war with one another. Widespread buy-in. When we pray first and we have clear action, we all of a sudden have co-conspirators that will continue to push through the mud, that will hold one another up and will fight through these difficulties together. That as you are discerning your call about maybe a justice issue that has you as a burden by the heart and you begin to lean in and others come with you, know that it will be challenging. You will meet headwinds. I had a great opportunity this week to talk with a couple that's really wrestling with a call to to go and be house parents at LifeHouse. And we wrestle with the fact that, yes, if you say yes to this, know this, it will be hard, harder than you imagine. Because the truth is, every great calling journey has the shape of a V, just like this chapter. At the end of last chapter, everyone was unified and working. It was a high moment. And then as the chapter, as the chapter develops from this high moment, it plunges down into the depths. And we heard it when there was opposition all around and the opposition was soaking into their very bones. They were starting to wonder, have we made a big mistake, a low point? But as they continue in prayer and clarity of action, God meets them. And by the end, there is this return to brotherhood and to unity that we see this story taking the shape of a V. And I just want you to know that yours too, your pursuit of your calling will have the shape of a V. If you say yes to your calling from God, you're saying yes to valleys and to opposition. You're saying yes to the muddy middle. But brothers and sisters, hear me. If you pray first, God is with you in the midst of that. If you have clarity of action, he will will begin to restore unity to those who are with you and enable you to keep moving. Our hope and our power, our confidence to move through this V of calling, to continue through the muddy middle comes from looking at the Lord Jesus and knowing that his story had the very same shape. 
Think about it, that as Jesus came, he came from heaven and he was low. But even after that, as he started his ministry and people began to gather and he had a certain amount of fame and following, that in the middle of the gospel of Luke, it says that our Lord Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Interestingly, the same city that Nehemiah had his face set to from a distance. And he began to march towards Jerusalem. And as he did, there was a steady and consistent decline as the opposition was building in those chapters throughout the gospel. We read that those who hated Jesus, they shook with, with fury as they spoke against him and they hated him and they wanted his blood and they threatened him. But Jesus prayed first as he moved into this opposition, even on the night before he was betrayed. Where was he? But he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he wasn't praying a staid and a formal prayer. He was praying one that was marked by tears and by guttural honesty as he called out to Abba, his father. He prayed first with real relational honesty. And then clarity of action. He told Peter, put your sword away. Let them take me. I know what I am doing. I am marching towards the cross to absorb the penalty, the curse of sin itself. And he met his opposition head on and they swallowed him. But beautifully, the V of Jesus's journey is so profound because he went down to that moment, but then he swung to glory as he conquered death, rising again and then being seated at the right hand of God. And this is what I need you to hear. We have the perfect leader leading us. One who is in the midst of the struggle with us, but one who can do two things uniquely. He can provide clarity of action saying, follow me in these ways and he can promise certainty. No one else in the world can. The reason? Because he conquered the deepest valley of all, and now he's seated in the place of power. He doesn't just provide clarity. He promises certainty. And he says that if you are with me, your story will be an ultimate V. Yes, it will be hard and you will plunge to the depths. But if you're mine, you will swing into glory with me. Your story is already set. So don't lose heart in the muddy middle. Don't lose heart. We can have widespread buy-in, locking arms as brothers and sisters and saying with Jesus leading us, we will continue to move through the muddy middle. We will continue to the glory of God and by the power of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our God, thank you. Thank you that our story is not defined by the valleys that we find ourselves in that they will come. And I pray that we would be fearless and courageous as we press into those places. As our calling draws us down, I pray that we would move in that direction, but knowing that Jesus goes before us and that he has already secured victory on the other side of the muddy middle. And so God, help us. Help us to be a people who with arms locked alongside of one another, who pray first and move forward with clarity of action, knowing that Jesus is at the helm. Help us to continue as we pursue the calling that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.